Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazelle Amami. On this week's show, we talk to Fargo creator Noah Hawley and imagine the other Coen Brothers films we'd like to see as TV shows. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Solar sites Hey, Gazelle. Hi, Matt. And Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. Hey, Gazelle. Hey, Matt. Hey, Jen. Hi, Jen. So, so this week's prompt is kind of a tough one. We're we're choosing which Coen Brothers film each of us would like to see as a TV show, and there are just so many great Coen Brothers films that could work for TV because there's there's such great universes that you kind of want to continue living in. Yes. So, like, just to just to note, like Fargo, we're not talking about direct remakes here. We're talking about something that takes inspiration from from this world. So, so Matt and Jen, if if you could pick only one, what Coen Brothers film would you choose to live in? Am I am I going first? Go, Matt. Go for okay. it. Okay. <laughs> uh, as you have said, it is hard to choose. It's very very hard to choose. I'm thinking about the long term potential of something like this, and uh, I would have to go with Miller's Crossing mm. because I think Miller's Crossing. I think that that's as close to a perfect movie as I've ever seen, but it also does a great job of creating a universe that feels like it pre-exists the beginning of the story of the film. You know, you you hear about these rivalries and there's an old crime boss and there's a a crime boss who's slightly younger than him that wants to unseat him and then there are these rival factions of Italian and and uh Irish gangsters in this uh, I think it's Chicago, although I believe they shot it somewhere else. And then there's this whole kind of subcategory of there's the gamblers, there's the prostitutes, there's the there there's this whole sort of uh, secondary layer of like Jewish bookkeepers and 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 accountants and people who work for different mob groups and and they they're sort of utility infielders and it's a very complicated story and I just think it just seems to lend itself to TV and in fact Boardwalk Empire I think probably one of one of the things uh, one of the reasons I never quite warmed to Boardwalk Empire uh, the way other people did is that it wasn't Miller's Crossing. Right. It was kind of the same world. It was set in the same time frame, and it even had a lot of the same kind of music and the hats and the flapper dresses and all that kind of stuff. And it just wasn't know, as good. Wasn't as good. Yeah, yeah. So that, but then also my alternate would be the Big Lebowski. Oh yeah, the Big Lebowski. Right. That, just, that would be so hard to to please people with, though, don't you? Oh, think? it would be really, really hard. And also, I don't know what you would call it. <laughs> you can't call you know like Miller's Crossing. You could call it Miller's Crossing because that's the name of a place, right? Like Fargo, right? Right. And and it could sort of take on a meaning besides the geographical one. But I think you know, the Big Lebowski, you're going to want to see the Big Lebowski. Jeff Bridges is probably too old to do it now. Or maybe he isn't. The Little Lebowski? The Little Lebowski. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's it could protege. be about Jeff Lebowski's son that he had with uh, with Maude. Yeah, there you go. Through, uh, uh, <laughs> you remember? Isn't that what happened at the end of that? Yeah. That sounds right. Yeah, she finds out yeah. she's pregnant with the dude's yeah. child. So maybe it's, yeah. You and it could be an animated dude, series. Yeah. An a anim- little dude. Lebowski babies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Muppet Babies version. Yeah. They drink little tiny white Russians. <laughs> <laughs> it's just milk. Yeah, I was going to say, without the alcohol. <laughs> How about you, Jen? What would you pick? Well, I, I preface this by saying I, I don't know that it's possible to only choose one. I, I have chosen one for the purposes of this conversation. But if you asked me again in like a couple of days, I'd probably choose something else. But I thought of Inside Lewin Davis, which is a movie that I really enjoyed of theirs that really didn't seem to resonate with the wider public at all. It it resonated with critics a lot, but it felt like no one really saw it. 
and I, I, that's another one where it's a, it's an interesting world. It's New York. It's, it's, you know, just before Bob Dylan's about to break, it's the folk scene. I love the music in that movie. So if they were able to do a series and, and continue exploring the music, I think that would be really great. Um, I, if they were somehow able to do it and get Oscar Isaac to star in it, that's another, you know, point in its favor. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, yeah, again, that's just one where I felt like the, the world there was really, really rich and it's a little, it's a little depressing, um, but it had that, you know, that dark Coen Brothers sense of humor. Yeah. I, also, they could just do a whole episode like they did on High Maintenance about the dog, about the cat in that oh, movie. It could easily cat. be an episode, if not a season. Ooh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, I do feel like even though people didn't, that movie didn't resonate with people as much for some reason, it definitely has a sense of place in mm-hmm. a way that would lend itself well to to television, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So what's your choice, Gazelle? So my choice, I would say it's one that has less of a sense of place, but I'm into it for different reasons, which is I would I would go with Burn After Reading. Hmm. And <laughs> I mm. I love Burn After Reading. I love that movie. And I just think <laughs> some sort of CIA, FBI, bureaucratic comedy where you're following all these dunces in and around the government would just be really funny right now. Right. And you know, this movie came out in 2008 before Obama started his term. And can you just imagine it in the Trump era? Like, a deep state version of Veep. Basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. But people um, that are even stupider somehow. Exactly. Like just kind of just <laughs> going real hard on the 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 stupidity would be, would be <laughs> yeah. really satisfying, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. So, Matt, you made a face. Do you not like this movie? No, I love this. <laughs> I love this movie. I love this movie. I just think uh, it's an unexpected choice. Yeah. That's all. I, there are no Coen Brothers movies that I don't like. I mean, none. even none, none, zero. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I'll go to the mattresses for pretty much all of their films, you know, including like the Lady Killers and and uh, what was the one about divor- the divorce lawyer? Oh, I love Intolerable Cruelty. Intolerable Cruelty. cruelty. Like a lot of people yeah. are down on those two, but I think they're just funny yeah. as hell. Yeah. Right. I remember seeing um, Burn After Reading at, at like a press screening and I brought an intern with me. And there's that big opening scene where Malkovich is making the speech after they tell him they're like moving him out of his department or whatever. And he's just so irate and he starts making these like crucifixion type of gestures. And I was laughing so hard that I think I honestly scared the intern. (laughs) She was like, what is wrong with this woman? Why is this so funny to her? I'm like, oh, you haven't lived long enough to get why this is funny, but trust me. (laughs) Well, I, I, I have a story that's sort of like that, which is I saw Raising Arizona when it first came out in 1987. I was in high school and it was with the young woman who had become my first serious girlfriend. And I think that I might have fallen in love with her while watching Raising Arizona with her because we were both laughing so hard at it that at the same moment, and it was when the when the bomb full of paint explodes in the, in the car with, uh, with John Goodman and uh-huh. uh, uh, what's his name, William uh, Forsyth, and they start screaming. <laughs> and they're like wiping the paint off the windshield and screaming and banging on the car and all that stuff. We both fell out of our chairs and we were holding onto the seats in front of us laughing so hard that tears were streaming down our face. And that was like, and yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like a great romantic That's moment so in my sweet. life. So thanks. <laughs> thanks, Coen Brothers. Maybe there could be a series about people who fall in love while watching Coen Brothers movies. And it could be a different episode and a, a different couple in every episode. Well, you know, that could actually be a series and I'm sure it would run forever because I've heard every time I post about the Coen Brothers on social media, I get a story like that. It's like I, really? fell, I fell in love with my husband while watching, you know, Fargo or some it's always some weird thing. It's like <laughs> you wouldn't think that it would be conducive to romantic well, feelings. But what it is, a lot of times it's like 
it's if you go out on a date with somebody, it's and and you don't really know them that well, and you take them to the movies, it's kind of a test. Yeah, it's like right. you if they like it as much as you do, then you know that maybe they're not all bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard, and from it's a one... specific kind of sensibility exactly. too. It's like you either get that or you don't. So yes. it's a very, very good test. Very. Yeah, I heard from one couple where they fell in love after watching The Man Who Wasn't There. Which is one of the films is like, that's a Coen Brothers deep cut. And even <laughs> yeah. people who love the Coen Brothers are kind of divided on the merits of that film. Yeah. But it's like, that. I think their feeling coming out of it was, if we can have a two-hour conversation about this movie, then things are going to be fine. <laughs> so, listeners, that is this week's prompt. If you'd like to weigh in or if you have any stories of falling in love over Coen Brothers movies to share with us, <laughs> please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. Next up, Matt is joined by Fargo's Noah Hawley. We'll be right back. Noah, thanks for being on the show. Of course, my pleasure. So at this point in the game with uh, uh, season three, um, do you feel like you know what a Fargo story is? Do you feel like there are particular like you know it when you see it or are there a list of elements that you feel like you have to have because the audience will be annoyed if you don't have them well i i mean i think the the whole goal is to see how far we can expand the definition i suppose which is not to say my ambition is to expand it it's just you know every year is a new season and you sort of follow the story where it goes you know that said i think there are a few rules of thumb that I try to stick by. One, one is that we need, you know, we need enough moving pieces uh, on a collision course that we have an element of randomness to the story, which gives it a sort of realer life feel, I suppose. And, you know, I mean, I think it's always the tension between comedy and tragedy, which means it has to be a tragedy on some level. The things that happen can't just be a drama. There have to be those tragic elements. And what makes it tragic is always... If you're going off the movie, it's it's a tragedy based on people's inability to communicate. So right. you know, Jerry Lundegaard, if he could have just asked his father-in-law or his wife for the money, none of that ever would have happened. So, right. you know, those <laughs> elements loosely sort of keep us on the rails. Yeah, and I guess you also have that thing where, and this is also true of the Coen Brothers movies, where uh, one person's tragedy is another person's comedy and vice versa. Yeah, it's true. You know, it is complicated uh, moral spectrum and tonal spectrum, and that that's what makes it really interesting. And, and you know, part of the reason that I wanted to, to uh, have these two brothers played by the same actor, because as much as one of them is the underdog and the other one's the winner, you can't help but see the family resemblance. And, and whatever empathy you have for the underdog, you probably also carry some of it over to uh you know to, to rooting for the older brother at certain moments that's true i actually found myself i was pleasantly surprised by the fact that i didn't really hate either of these guys no i think it's it's um it's only interesting if if you're sort of rooting for everybody i think and and you know i mean i feel like people even rooted for lauren malvo he was such a protagonist you know people liked him he he uh he made things happen. He was mischievous, and and you know Mike Milligan or or you know Dodd. There was always something compelling about these characters that you couldn't just sort of write them off into the mustache twirling uh, environment. <laughs> That's true, but you know, of course, also Satan is usually the most exciting character in any story he appears in. 
Well, it's true. But, you know, I think that part of what I try to do is to create a, a dynamic where the viewer has to make up their own minds and, and, uh, there's, there's always going to be violence and we're always going to be headed to violence. And, and I think we're, we're sort of trained by, certainly by American movies to root for violence. And, and, and yet when we get there, my hope is that it's never entertainment that you think that you want it. You think you want Don Chump uh, to be shot up in that house because Malva's put it in, into motion and it seems fun. And then, and then it happens and it's so over the top and so awful that you sort of, feel a little sick at yourself for wanting it in the first place. So, you know, my goal is not to create more entertainment violence, but to do what Joel and Ethan do in the movie, which is, you know, it's always shocking and it's sort of a little more graphic than it needs to be. And, and, and it's brief, but, but it really rocks you back. Right. As uh, Steve Buscemi says, whoa, daddy. (laughs) When you're plotting your way through a season of this, how how does that process happen? I mean, is it a situation where you you come up with the characters in a, in a basic situation and then you sort of logically ask yourself what would happen next based on who these people are? Or do you have a, an end goal in mind? Like, we want to end up here. How do we get there? Eventually, you have an end goal. But, you know, at first, you just sort of think, all right, well, there's two brothers and and the older one traded the younger one for something when they were kids. And now the younger one feels chipped because, you know, Emmett, the older brother turned out to be a very successful man. And Ray, the younger brother turned out to be not a successful man. And he thinks part of that is, is based on his brother tricking him when he was a kid. So now he gets this idea in his head to steal back what he thinks belongs to him. And that kind of starts things in motion. And, and, you know, that's not a, that's not an entire story. That's just a setup, really. So, you know, then the, the tr- trick is to come up with complicating factors. So, may, well, maybe Emmett, the older brother, has, you know, because of the financial crash and because he's a, a land baron in the parking lot kingdom of Minnesota, uh, <laughs> he's borrowed a bunch of money a, a year ago from someone it turns out he shouldn't have borrowed money from. And that guy now wants to be partners. And there's a, you know, that's a complicating factor that makes the this petty feud with his brother more dangerous. And then obviously you have to bring law enforcement into it. So you have those moving pieces as well. So yeah, it does become a nice jigsaw puzzle. And the key is always, because, you know, I get pitched in the writer's room, a lot of twists that feel like great twists, but they're movie twists. Um, Mm. You know, we're all instinctually rooting for the white hat and the black hat to show show, to have a showdown at the end of the at the end of this thing, and but that's not really how life works out. So, you know, the twists need to be a little more random and a little more realistic, I guess, for lack of a better word. Yeah, in this in this particular season, the fact that you've got a crime that comes about purely by accident, and yet the crime that's committed to cover it up makes it feel like it's almost fated to happen. You know, it's what I liked in that first year as well, is that there's a sort of logic leap that can't be made. This idea that Warren Malvo uh, would have met Lester in an emergency room, and Lester said, well, if you're so sure, why don't you just kill him? And, <laughs> and Malvo does. He doesn't do it for money. He doesn't do it. There's no logical reason that he would do it, but he does. Yeah. So as a law enforcement officer, you're never going to make that leap. And the same thing here, this idea that, that it, you know, Ray hired this guy to 
steal something from his brother and the guy lost the address and drove to the wrong town and robbed the wrong guy. It's, you know, it's this, it's this, you can't make it up dynamic that makes it a very hard case to solve. One of the things that has always intrigued me about the Coens, and, and I feel like you've continued it in this show in your own way, is this question of, uh, is there fate in this universe that you've created? Is there a God? In this universe and characters are, you know, particularly the characters who have suffered horribly for no apparent reason. They actually talk about this stuff like this weighs heavily on their minds. But the uh, the story never answers it. I mean, and I don't want you to necessarily, but I wondered how you as an author think about that when you're writing these stories. You know, is this a universe where you've got the gods or, you know, God or the gods stirring a pot or, you know, are they malicious or is it all just random numbers? Well, I think that all those questions are a part of the fabric of the storytelling, uh, and it's not my my job to provide answers really as mu- as much as it is to, you know, explore the dynamics that Joel and Ethan have established in their in their films. You know, you look at a movie like A Serious Man, which which ends with this sort of Schrodinger's cat paradox, um, or and starts with a parable from the shtetl, or the man who wasn't there, which where Billy Bob sees a literal UFO come down. Yeah. You know, the dynamics of Anton Chigurh, who who seems to be a slightly magical character who is in a room and then disappears from that room. And, you know, there are those elements of back to the lone biker, the apocalypse in, in Raising Arizona. Right. You know, some of these characters who populate their universe seem eternal. They seem like these elemental figures who are sort of blowing through the American landscape. And, and will never die. Lord Malvo says, I haven't had a piece of pie like that since the Garden of Eden. And you think, well, that could be true. <laughs> well, that is true. Yeah. And uh, there's also an element of, uh, I guess, that kind of mythological feeling of uh, the characters are projections. Uh, the, the monsters or creatures or evil people seem to often be projections of the issues of other characters. The lone, the lone biker is yeah, probably is the first idea. character like that. Jimmy Cohen's. Yeah. Well, maybe and maybe M. Emmett Walsh and Blood Simple, also. Yeah, he he seems a little bigger than life, but you know I do think there is this this sense in in their work of you know larger fates at work, and you know I I like playing with those ideas. Obviously, there's this heightened storytelling of fish falling from the sky, uh, or the UFO that we used, or or those elements that that are there really to enhance the themes of the story and to say, look, it's not just a crime story. It's, you know, in some ways this recipe that I've stumbled across is, is a way to, to use a crime story to kind of to explore the meaning of meaningless events and the search that we have for meaning, you know, this, this sort of Sisyphus myth from this, from season two. And, and then Kristen Liotti's character says, well, Whoever said life is absurd didn't have a six-year-old girl, you know. Right. Yeah. That's all well and good, but, you know, we're on this earth to work hard, and uh, when it's over, it's over. And, you know, and, and, and some of that is about belief and what do you believe, and it means what you think it means. You decide what it means. All three seasons of the show are filled with echoes of the Coens, and some of them are quite pointed and intentional, like they're we're meant to notice them. And other times they almost seem like accidental or perhaps I'm imagining them, but it's definitely like a vocabulary. It's like you've got a vocabulary that you can then put to your own uses. And what I wonder is, 
are there moments where you intentionally say this, you know, the UFO is a great example of that. Did the did the idea of the of using the UFO for that purpose in season two come from the man who wasn't there, or was it more some kind of supernatural or unnatural event should happen? What if it's a UFO? Holy crap! There's one of those, and the man who wasn't there. <laughs> it was more the latter. It was more wanting, you know, knowing that it was '79, post Watergate, post Vietnam. The conspiracy did go all the way to the top, and there was a big, you know, it was right after. Uh, um, close encounters of the third kind in Star Wars, and there was this real sort of UFO craze at that moment. And then, you know, I found this article about a Minnesota state trooper who had a UFO incident, and and it just seemed like um, that the country had gotten so sort of weird and paranoid that that anything was possible, and that was a way to examine that. And then you sort of go to the urtext. And you go, well, is there any precedent for this? And you think, oh, yeah, so in, this, in the man who wasn't there, there's a UFO, and you, I don't know, a lot of UFO symbolism. And, and so it's definitely in the zeitgeist there of, of their work. And, and uh, um, you know, and so sometimes it works that way. And other times you think, well, you know, it's, you know, we, we have in, in season three, we have the, one of Ray Stussy's parolees who's a stoner character who you can't help but avoid a Lebowski comparison on some level. And then mm-hmm. you, you kind of use that to your advantage because you go, yeah, there there are some parallels, but this character turns out to be a very different character from that benign dude. And yeah. so that might make the, the turns that come even more shocking because what you're expecting is Lebowski and what you end up with is something very different. You because you're skipping through the decades and you're also setting stories in different areas of the Midwest and yet you have these characters who seem like, you know, they're not exactly copies but they're like they almost seem like recurring reincarnated like shards of each other almost. You get this almost like right. it's like the shining, it's like the hotel in the shining where there was only one caretaker. You know, we're kind of seeing Jerry Lundegaard and Marge like in different guises, almost, and and you know all these other Cohen brothers characters, the same thing. But also, you know, you you've been you've done enough episodes of this show now where you've kind of developed your own little gallery of characters, like something out of Dubliners or 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 Stephen King, where like you know Maine, like all the different counties in Maine, it gets to the point where somebody will mention Cujo in another story. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No. And and you put stuff in that that maybe no one notices or. You know, I mean, in, uh, at the end of last season, Ted Danson talked about going to visit his sister in Brainerd. And uh, I wasn't saying that his sister was Francis McDormand's character, but certainly he was driving up there to see his sister. So one one could make the, make the, make the connection if they wanted to. But, yeah, there is something, I think, to the Minnesota nice and the small town community and everybody knows everybody else. And, and you know, that's what makes the sort of violence that occurs in, in, I mean, first of all, it has to be rare and, uh, and horrible because it really stands out. And you, you'd like to think that these are towns, Eden Valley, Minnesota, you know, they haven't had a murder in 18 months or two years or, you know, so these things are really noteworthy and, and, and they're noteworthy because, you know, so everybody knows everybody else and the stranger in town, people notice, et cetera. So I think there is something to keeping up that identity of, a sort of romantic small town life that where the innocence is shattered by these events. 
you're on the internet, so you're 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 aware of this sort of thing. But you get a certain type of person who watches a show like this who is obsessed with the details, who's obsessed with making it all sort of fit together into like a grand unifying like universe or map. It's like the extended Fargo universe or something. Right. Do you think that way? I mean, when you're when you're doing this, when you and the writers are, are coming up with this world, are you worried about continuity in the way that they would be on, say, uh, I mean, it sounds like a strange example, but like on the Star Trek shows, they're, they're, they're set like 100 or 200 years apart sometimes and in different parts of the galaxy. But for a long time, they were worried about making every piece be consistent with every other piece. And, and, and to the point where some writers began to complain, it's like, I feel like I'm in a straitjacket here. I can't do anything without contradicting something that was done on one of the other five iterations of this universe. Do you, you know, right. what, what sort of uh, care do you take to make all those pieces fit? Or do you care about that? I don't really track it season to season in that, in that way. I don't think, I mean, obviously our second year was a, was a prequel in many ways to our first year. So I did want to say, all right, well, Ted Danson plus Patrick Wilson plus Kristen Moyadi equals Allison Tolman. Um, but as far as connect, making sure that I'm connecting in some way between Bob Odenkirk and, and, and Nick Offerman, you know, or any of the other characters, I don't really, it's not like the Simpsons where you have like 150 recognizable characters. Right. Um, at a certain point, I'm just focused on the story I'm telling now. So if you have a story where, uh, you know, you got this story, I guess it's set in 2010. Is that right? And uh -huh. then uh, season two was 79. And what was season one? It was like 2006 or something? Uh, 2006. Yeah. yeah. So if you got a story that's set in 2010 and it contradicts details from 2006 and somebody points that out to you, you know, or something happens in season four or five, assuming there is one. Do you say, oh, yeah. oh, sh shit, we let that go. How did that happen? Or do you just shrug and go, well. You know, well, the whole thing's a lie, right? I mean, it's a true story that isn't true. So if right. you're, you're tracking it for the realistic continuity, I think it's the wrong exercise. Yeah. You know, that becomes, you know, the fun of it on some level. And certainly something I'm exploring in this third season is this opening sentence. This is a true story that started the movie and started the every episode of the show. And, and it's not a true story. The movie wasn't true. Neither of the two years are true. I'm making it all up. So it's a very odd thing and then part part of the structural challenges that I have are how do you create a story that feels true when it's not what are the elements of the story that make you go oh yeah that must really happened you know in the case of the movie it was including this high school character who calls her out of the blue and and they have a meal together and he tells her this sob story about his wife who died and he's just so lonely and it turns out that it's a big lie and and this girl is, has a restraining order against him for stalking her. And you think, why is this in the movie? It has nothing to do with the story, except it's the kind of detail that you would put in if it really happened. Because right. you're, you're like, well, I didn't want to put it in, but it really happened. So I, yeah. I think that's a very necessary scene because that's the moment where she realizes that she can be lied to. Yeah. Well, and, and it's she has left her sort of safe bubble of her home where everything makes sense. And, you know, you look at... at that movie, and you look at our first season with Allison Tolman, I mean, these were two women who were living in a world where everything made sense, and then the deeper they got into this case, the less things made sense, you know, and I contrast that with, with Carrie Coon's character this year, who's starting in a world where things don't make sense to her. She's 
Her husband left her for another man. She's sharing custody of her child now. Her job is in flux because she's been the chief in the small town, but they're being absorbed by the county, so she's both chief and not chief at the same time. And then her stepfather dies. And, you know, so she's very much someone from whom the rug is already pulled out from under. And, and um, you know, that is very different than those two, those other two women who, who were, you know, very secure in the, in, in the sensibility of their, their room, of their, um, of their lives. You are a, you're a novelist and, and you have a literary sensibility. However, um, on the show and particularly in season two, I, I, I really felt like it was written in images. I don't mean exclusively in images, but I mean, you're thinking in pictures and this is not something that is always true with people who are novelists who then yeah. move over to TV. What I wondered is, right. did you always think cinematically, but you didn't necessarily write, you know, your fiction like it's a movie? Some people do write fiction like it's like they're basically they're writing a movie that's in their minds. You don't really do that. You write, you know, you write actual fiction, but then you make this and it's very cinematic. Are you suppressing that cinematic side when you write literature because it's not, you know, not what you want to do or? You know, I, I guess I'm wondering what's the relationship between your literary sensibility and your cinematic one? And, 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 and how has being essentially a filmmaker affected your, uh, your literature? Well, they are very different mediums. And, and you know, the, the novel is, is really concerned with internal states. And, and much of what motivates the action in books is, is, is people's stream of consciousness and, and the the thought and emotions that go into every decision and every action, and, and you read that, and you're inside those people's minds and moving the story forward. Obviously, on screen, you can't go into people's minds. You can only see into their eyes, and, you know, so the way that people supplant that is they have people talk about their feelings and talk about their, you know, their motivations and their drives, but that's not very realistic, I don't think, and and also it's it's exhausting. I mean, television is obviously a medium of talking heads historically, you know, broadcast television especially is a medium where half of the show is, is people doing things and the other half is people talking about how they feel about the things that they're doing, and, and you know, my goal was always to tell the story with the camera, and if we're trying to emulate uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen, who are, who are both, you know, the greatest, you know, some of the greatest film writers of all time, but also the greatest filmmakers, you know, obviously we, we can't just write great scripts. We have to make great film. And, and so that that becomes the, the goal. And, and you know, I, I would say with starting with the show I did, which was called My Generation, which was a fake documentary, you know, it forced me to really think about, well, if you're making a documentary where you don't have, you you know, usually a documentary camera isn't where it wants to be. You know, it's not there for the action and, and the backstory. And, you, you know, so you're using found photographs and, and you're using audio recordings and you're assembling this this record. And as a storyteller, that was a great challenge to say, how do you, um, you know, how do you assemble all this stuff without when you don't have what you need? Um, so it, made, it started me thinking about like telling the story with the camera instead of instead of through dialogue. Have you thought about other uh, uh, areas of the Midwest or other decades that you want to explore in a in a fourth season? Well, I always joke about the space station Fargo in the year fifty one fifty, but I don't know. I mean, I, I think that that you know, obviously, you could go anywhere. You could go back to the eighteen hundreds when it was 
you know, uh, when the land was settled, you you could be in the 40s or 50s, which is a very Cohen Brothers era. But I don't know yet. I haven't figured it out. Um, and, you know, what I like about working at FX is that I don't have to hit an air date and I can just sort of see what strikes me. Because obviously to build one of these, the 10-hour crime story that that is trying to understand the secrets of, of the universe, it, it takes a certain amount of inspiration. What's the name of that true crime book in season two? The history of, of true crime in the Midwest, I think, something <laughs> like that. Yeah. yeah. Do you see this series as being basically that? That was always my pitch that that every all of these, you know, that this book had been written and and all of these details were, you know, all these cases were a chapter in that book. And you know, we saw the book obviously in season two, but we don't see it in season three. It, you know, I, I don't want this to become a kind of gimmick. Right. All right. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Well, thanks, Matt. It's always good to talk to you. Take care now. That's it for this week's show. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Jordan Bell, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazella Mommy. I'm Matt Zeller Seitz. You can reach me on Twitter at Matt Zeller Seitz. Never leave a man behind! <laughs> and I'm Jen Chaney, and you can find me on Twitter at Chaney J. Thanks for listening. <laughs>